Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. We carry out our work on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We're delighted to share the following event from our 2023 festival, which took place in October. Naomi Klein is the award-winning author of international bestsellers, including This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, No Is Not Enough, and On Fire. She joined us for a deep dive into her latest work, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, which was a New York Times notable book of 2023 and one of Time's 100 must-read books of 2023. She speaks here with Jarrett Martineau, curator-in-residence at the Chan Center for the Performing Arts. You can hear more fascinating conversations from the festival in our digital festival, which features 25 more outstanding events from this year's lineup. Passes are on sale now and will grant you access to watch and listen online from December 15th to January 31st. Visit our website to learn more, writersfest.bc.ca. This event was recorded live on October 21st, 2023, and presented in partnership with UBC Center for Climate Justice and the Chan Center for the Performing Arts. We'd also like to thank our public sector funders, without whom we couldn't do our work. Thank you to the Government of Canada, the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, the Government of BC, the City of Vancouver, and CMHC Granville Island. Hi, I'm Naomi Klein, and as some of you know, I have a doppelganger a person who does many extreme things that cause strangers to chastise me or thank me or express their pity for me. I used to be horrified by this, but then something happened that I didn't expect. I got interested. Interested in what it means to have a doppelganger. So I decided to follow my doppelganger to a place I've come to think of as the mirror world. It's a strange mirror image of the world where I live. It's a place where many ideas that I care about are being twisted and warped into dangerous doppelganger versions of themselves. When I look at the mirror world, I don't see disagreements over a shared reality. I see disagreements about what is real and what is a simulation. And with AI generating more and more of what we see and hear, it's only getting harder to distinguish the authentic from the synthetic. After all, artificial intelligence is a mirroring and mimicry machine. We feed in the cumulative words, ideas, and images that our species has managed to create. And these programs mirror back to us something that feels uncannily lifelike. But it's not life. It's a forgery of life. I shadowed my double further into the mirror world, a place where soft-focused wellness influencers make common cause with fire-breathing far-right propagandists, all in the name of saving and protecting the children. Not everyone is dogged by their doppelganger, but our culture is crowded with all kinds of doubling. All of us who maintain a persona or avatar online are kind of creating our own doppelgangers. 
forging a separate public identity that is both us and not us, a doppelganger. We perform for one another as the price of admission in a rapacious attention economy. And all the while, tech companies create digital profiles of us without our full knowledge, data doubles or golems that follow us everywhere we go online, carrying their own agenda, their own logics, and their own threats. What is all of this doubling and doppelganging doing to us? How is it steering what we pay attention to, and more critically, what we neglect and ignore? Doppelgangers are often understood as a warning or an omen, a message that something needs our attention. Reality is doubling, multiplying, glitching, telling us to pay attention. Because it's not just individuals who can flip into a sinister version of themselves, the Earth can transform into a menacing, uncanny twin of what we once knew. Whole societies can flip. That's the reason many doppelganger works of art are ultimately about the latent potential for fascism within our societies, even within ourselves. What I've learned by shadowing my double is that the forces that have destabilized my personal world are part of a much larger web of forces that are destabilizing our shared world. And understanding these forces may be our best hope of getting to firmer ground. Good evening, my name is Leslie Hertig and I'm the Artistic Director at the Vancouver Writers' Fest. It is my great pleasure to welcome you to this festival event featuring Naomi Klein in conversation with Jarrett Martineau, presented in partnership with the UBC Centre for Climate Justice and the Chan Centre for the Performing Arts. I would like to start by acknowledging that the Vancouver Writers' Fest carries out its work on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Tonight, we are on the unceded land of the Musqueam First Nation. These lands hold a history that most of us are just beginning to properly understand, and we acknowledge the great amount of work, learning and listening that still needs to be done as we move toward meaningful reconciliation and Indigenous sovereignty. Now allow me to please introduce the man who will start us off tonight. Gage Averill spent a decade working as a community organizer, a musician, world music DJ, music journalist, festival organizer, and tractor driver before returning to school to eventually obtain his doctorate in ethnomusicology. In his day job, however, he serves as provost and vice president academia at UBC. He tells me he has no excuse for this. Please welcome Welcome, Gage Averill. Thank you all, and good evening. Uh, thank you, Leslie, and thanks to the Vancouver Writers' Festival, great partners in this. Heiskasiem, welcome. What a treat it is to introduce our two guests tonight, uh, two extraordinary UBC citizens uh, who will shortly take over the stage for the interview-style book talk devoted to Naomi Klein's doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. This is the final stop on her tour. So uh, 
Uh, it's a very special uh, moment, and it makes great sense to me because uh, Naomi Klein is the UBC professor in climate justice and the founding co-director of the UBC Center for Climate Justice. Now, Naomi is a regular columnist with The Guardian, and her columns and op-ed pieces you can find published in leading media outlets all over the world. Uh, she I'm going to just give you a couple of the honors. I'm not going to do a long talk here, but she received Australia's Sydney Peace Prize. She was the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media Culture and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. She was named one of the Frederick Douglass 200 living individuals who best embody the work and the spirit of Frederick Douglass. And she received the IF Stone Award for Outstanding Independent Media and Journalism. Now, Naomi's interlocutor, big word, sorry, on stage tonight is um, also uh, known to, uh, well known to many of us. This is the curator in residence for the Chan Center for Performing Arts, Jarrett Martineau probably best known as the host, creator, and producer of Reclaimed, the first ever indigenous music series on CBC Radio, CBC Music. Uh, Jared is Cree from uh, Plains Cree and from Alberta, Frog Lake Cree Nation. He has a doctorate in indigenous governance, and he's become a leading creative voice working at the intersections of art, media, technology, social movements, indigenous resurgence, and decolonization. And so, would you please help me welcome to the stage Naomi Klein and Jared Martineau. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. These are difficult days, and if you're like me, even more difficult nights. I think it's a good time to gather Thank you, Gage, for that lovely introduction and for changing my life and bringing me here to UBC. Jared, thank you so much for, for being my conversation partner tonight. I can't wait for that. I also want to thank the Vancouver Writers Festival for hosting and for bringing so many incredible writers to our city. I have lots of thank yous, sorry. My wonderful publisher, Knopf Canada, my brilliant editor, Martha Kanye Forrester, who's here for the, for the festival and here tonight. Um, for this book, I was able to build an incredible research team made up of UBC graduate students, and two of them are here. Uh, JJ Mazzucatelli, thank you for all of your historical work and sleuthing. It was so fun to work with you. And then there is Kendra Jewell, the lead researcher on this project. Kendra really was my closest collaborator for two years, with me every step of the way, from lit reviews to endnotes. And they also, just last week, received their PhD in anthropology. Thank you, and congrats, Dr. <laughs> congrats, Dr. Jewell. I have so many colleagues here from the Faculty of Arts, including our new Dean, Claire Crouston, and shout out to all my colleagues in the Geography Department, the best department, and the Center for Climate Justice, especially my wonderful co-directors, Kavita Phillip and Hannah Whitman. So, I'm so lucky to work with them. So I've been touring all fall, and this is my last stop for a while. Uh, it's also, as you can see, a homecoming. And I want to acknowledge and thank the members of my family who are here tonight, 
Bonnie, Michael, and Seth Klein, Christine Boyle, and my husband, Avi Lewis, uh, all of whom supported me in countless ways and were all early readers of this text. So at each um, of these events, and I was just saying to Jarrett, there have been 17 on this tour, I've begun with a reading from the beginning of the book. Tonight, for reasons that I think will become obvious, I've chosen a different reading from near the end of the book. The passage I've chosen to read is from uh, a chapter called The Unshakable Ethnic Double, and it deals with the doubled self that is projected onto members of stereotyped minority groups. The passage makes reference to Philip Roth's doppelganger novel, Operation Shylock, in which Roth makes the case that all Jewish people have an inescapable doppelganger projected onto them, who is Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, the prototypical anti-Semitic archetype determined to get his pound of flesh. So it's the first time I'm reading this passage, uh, so bear with me, please. <clears throat> in my Hebrew day school in Montreal, as in so many schools like it, the facts of the Nazi genocide were drummed into us like arithmetic tables. The numbers of dead, the twisted forms of torture, the gas chambers, the cruelly closed borders. This was the late 1970s and early 80s, before the immersive Holocaust museums with walk-in cattle cars were constructed, before the March of the Living Tours took hundreds of thousands of young Jews on trips to Auschwitz. But we received lo-fi versions of the same experiences and our terrified imaginations filled in the blanks. Looking back as the parent of a child older than we were then, I'm struck by what wasn't part of these strangely mechanical retellings. There was space for the surface level emotions, horror at the atrocities, rage at the Nazis, a desire for revenge, but not for the more complex and troubling emotions of shame or guilt, or for reflections on what duties the survivors of genocide may have to oppose genocidal logics in all of their forms. I'm struck that we never actually grieved nor were we invited to seize our anger and turn it into an instrument of solidarity. Many years later, my friend Cecily Sarasky, one of the leaders of Jewish Voice for Peace, observed of these kind of educational methods, their re-traumatization, not remembering. There's a difference. When she said it, I knew it was true. Remembering puts the shattered pieces of ourselves back together again. Remembering. It's a quest for wholeness. At its best, it allows us to be changed and transmuted by grief and loss. But re-traumatization is about freezing us in a, in a shattered state. It's a regime of ritualistic reenactments designed to keep the losses as fresh and painful as possible. Our education did not ask us to probe the parts of ourselves that might be capable of inflicting great harm on others and to figure out how to resist them. It asked us to be as outraged and indignant at what happened to our ancestors as if it had happened to us and to stay in that state. The reason for this frozen quality to our education, I now see, was that the Holocaust was a plot point in a larger pre-written story, we were 
not only being told about, but we're also trapped inside. A phoenix from the flame narrative that began in the gas chambers of Nazi-controlled Europe and ended on the hilltops around Jerusalem. Though there was, were certainly exceptions, for the most part, the goal of this teaching was not to turn us into people who would fight the next genocide wherever it occurred. The goal was to turn us into Zionists. The line between the terrifying stories of our people being hunted and exterminated and the existence of this state on the other side of the world was, we were told, a straight one. It went like this. If fascist fervor ever surged again and men in jackboots got it into their heads to purge their national bodies of Jewish genes, we would not be left helpless and unarmed once again, not be left to plead for our survival, not be locked out of every nation that might have saved us, not be devoured by the specter of our Shylock doppelganger. Why? Because next time we would have Israel, the white and blue flag that flew at every school assembly, the place where the trees we had donated our allowances to buy were standing tall, planted over Palestinian villages we were never told existed. As was the case in many left-wing Jewish homes, I learned a different version of never again, that it was a directive, a sacred duty, to oppose hate and discrimination in all of its forms, no matter who was the target. But my mother insisted that I go to Hebrew school, day school to cement the bond to our tribe, to learn the songs, rituals, and languages, both Hebrew and Yiddish, that our adversaries had been trying to annihilate since before the Inquisition. And at that school, never again did not mean never again to anyone, as it did in our home. It meant never again to the Jews. It meant never again because of Israel. It meant never again because we who have been haunted by Shylock forever have our own double now, the Zionist new Jew, and he has a great many guns. Doppelganger politics. That is how Caroline Rooney, professor of African and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Kent, describes the state of Israel and the complex psychological space it occupies as both victim and perpetrator. The doppelganger nature of the country's identity is embedded in the dualistic language used to describe it, in which everything is doubled and never singular. Israel-Palestine, Arab and Jew, two states, the conflict. Based on a fantasy of symmetrical power, this suturing together of two peoples implies conjoined twins in a state of unending struggle, an irresolvable sibling rivalry between two people, both descended from Abraham. Israel as doppelganger exists on two levels. First, it is a doppelganger of the forms of chauvinistic European nationalisms that turned Jews into pariahs on the continent since well before the Inquisition. That was Zionism's win-win pitch to anti-Semitic European powers. You get rid of your Jewish problem, i.e. Jews, who will leave your countries and migrate to Palestine, and Jews get a state of their own to mimic or twin the very forms of militant nationalism that had oppressed them for centuries. This is why Zionism was so fiercely opposed by members of the Jewish labor Bund, who believed that nationalism itself was their enemy and the wellspring of race hatred. Israel also became a doppelganger of the colonial project, specifically settler colonialism. 
Many of Zionism's basic rationales were thinly veiled Judaizations of core Christian colonial conceptions. Terra nullius became a land without a people for a people without a land. Manifest destiny became a land bequeathed to the Jews by divine right. Taming the wild frontier became making the desert bloom. There were notable differences in this doppelganger version of settler colonialism, however. One was timing. After World, World War II, anti-colonial mo movements surged in the Global South, with wave after wave of national movements rising up to reject colonial mandates and assert the right to self-determination. In the years after the war, all around what would become the State of Israel, former colonies were declaring their independence. The French were forced to definitively release their mandate over Syria and Lebanon and withdraw troops in 1946. Jordan won its independence from Britain that same year. Egyptians were in open revolt against the continued presence of the British. Israel, which became a state in 1948, was both a product of those forces and a glaring exception to them. Because a small population of Jews had lived in Palestine continuously, Zionists framed their movement as one of national liberation. Like other oppressed groups, Jews were getting a state of their own. Of course, from the perspective of the much larger Palestin population of Palestinians who were being evicted from their homes, lands, and communities to make way for a brand new country, Israel was very far from an anti-colonial project. It was the opposite a settler colony being established at a time when the rest of the world was going in the opposite direction. This could only have been incendiary. Israel's settler colonialism differed from its predecessors in another way. Where European powers colonized from a position of strength and a claim to God-given superiority, the post-Holocaust Zionist claim to Palestine was based on the reverse, on Jewish victimization and vulnerability. The tacit argument many Zionists were making at the time was that Jews had earned the right to an exception from the decolonial consensus, an exception born of their very recent near extermination. The Zionist version of justice said to Western powers, if you could establish your empires and your settler colonial nations through ethnic cleansing, massacres, and land theft, then it is discrimination to say that we cannot. If you cleared your land of its indigenous inhabitants or did so in your colonies, then it is anti-Semitic to say that we cannot. It was as if the quest for equality was being reframed not as the right to be free from discrimination, but as the right to discriminate, colonialism framed as reparations for genocide. Except if Hitler had been inspired by settler colonialism in North America, and he clearly was, then this was anything but reparations. It was a continuation of the colonial logic, but with broken and traumatized people let loose on a people even less powerful than themselves. Palestinians under this arrangement became, as the anti-colonial scholar Edward Said put it, the victims of the victims, or in the words of Joseph Massad, the new Jews. To do unto others the same othering that has been done unto you is, of course, psychologically intolerable. Indeed, such actions are so antithetical to Jewish values that they demand extreme repression and projection. Doppelgangers in literature often embody a partitioned self. 
As Rooney writes, doppelganger politics is first, and form, first of all a politics of self-partition, with everything we cannot bear to see projected onto the other. As Israel if Israel practices doppelganger politics by imitating European nationalisms, it also enacts it in this second way, by projecting all criminality and violence onto the Palestinian other, lest the state's own foundational crimes be confronted. Meanwhile, the colonial nature of the project only grows more naked with time, with openly racist and Jewish supremacist political players consolidating their power at every level. When it formed at the end of 2022, Israel's new far-right government called not just for continued occupation of the West Bank, but for its annexation, explicitly stating in its coalition agreement that, quote, the Jewish people has an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, the Golan, Judea, and Samaria. The frontier was moving, as all frontiers do. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Naomi. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, I think I want to start with a, a slight response to what you just read, which is for a book that is, is and has been framed to many as a, a journey into understanding the doppelganger of being mistaken for another, another writer, Naomi Wolf, it might be a bit unexpected to end up where we ended up tonight in terms of uh, the reading that you shared. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe help us walk back from that initial place uh, to ending up in an understanding of a doppelganger society. So how we traverse, as you do in the book, these many uh, different forms of doppelganger uh, experience at different scales that kind of culminates in, I think, an understanding of, as you put it, like a doppelganger society. So can you maybe kind of walk us through what that arc is? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a windy road. <laughs> sure. You know, this book is, it's, it is different from, from my earlier books in the sense that um, those books that Gage was kind enough to mention were really worth, were argument books, were thesis books that put the argument, you know, out front um, and then proceeded to, to prove and, 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 you know, one chapter builds on the next, but it's a fairly linear trip to, to the conclusion. Um, this book came out of a feeling of speechlessness that I had during the pandemic where I kind of lost faith in those kinds of stories and in my, in, in the ability of that, of that kind of writing to, to have an impact. And I was feeling very kind of confused about, um, about the way political lines were shifting. I was confused about who I was in the world because I was, you know, stuck at home and the creation of ourselves, I think, is a social process. You know, there is, I think, a, the idea of, you know, we have a core sense of self, but we also create ourselves in conversation with community. And, and I, like so many of us, lost that. And so I was feeling very destabilized. 
and I decided that I just wasn't sure if I could do that kind of writing again. And so what I actually did is I, I, um, I, I went back to school. I, I, I started working with a writing teacher to just play. Um, to, I figured like if I couldn't get excited about content, like if I didn't know the, the, the political story I wanted to tell, which is what I've always sort of known in my previous books, that I could maybe remember why I wanted to be a writer in the first place and just sort of play. So we just, we started, I was just doing these little like sort of undergraduate writing exercises. And then at, while that was happening, I was experiencing this tsunami of identity confusion online where when I would go on, when, when I would log on to social media sites that I shouldn't log on to because they're terrible for our mental health, but it was like some simulation of the friendships that I missed. Um, I would find, you know, hundreds, some days, thousands of people uh, mistaking me for somebody else who was the, the writer Naomi Wolf. And so at a certain point, it occurred to me that that provided an interesting hook or container to do this other kind of like more creative nonfiction. So that's what the book, you know, the, so the book uses my identity confusion just as a jumping off point. She's a through line in the sense that she's an interesting case study for a certain kind of political migration from left to right or, or center left to right. We all know people who changed during the pandemic, you know, of maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's a yoga teacher, maybe, you know, I mean, we know these people suddenly they're talking about QAnon and they've joined the trucker convoy. Um, so she's a case study for that because she, she was this very prominent um, uh, third wave feminist, uh, you know, probably the most prominent of that particular wave, certainly the most telegenic. And then um, you know, started working for the Democratic Party, uh, was Al Gore's you know, advisor on women's issues and things like that. And then she's suddenly on Steve Bannon's show every single day. They're publishing books together. She's taking pictures of her gun. You know, it's, it's, you know, she's making excuses for the Supreme Court attacking reproductive rights. So it's an extreme trip she went on, but she's not the only one. There are a lot of people who change. So, you know, I use her as, as this through line, but ultimately she is, she is a white rabbit down the rabbit hole that is this broader um, exploration of, 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 of how whole societies can kind of have a doppelganger, which is what I was getting at in the chapter around Israel-Palestine, but it isn't only that. I mean, I think it's true, true here in lots of ways. Um, and, and it, it, you know, part of what I did in falling down this rabbit hole was, was read a lot of doppelganger novels and watch a lot of doppelganger films. And it became clear in my doppelganger studies <laughs> that that, that artists often use the figure of the doppelganger as a way to grapple with a hyper object, you know, to, to use Timothy Morton's phrase that, you know, something that's just too big or too frightening to, to wrap one's head around. So, um, you know, they're often used as ways to understand fascism because, and, you know, the, 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 if those of you who are here for the little film that we showed, if, the great dictator, the famous kind of brilliant 1940 film where, where Chaplin plays both the Jewish barber and the, um, and the Nazi-like dictator. Um, and he's getting at, I think, how, how it's possible to, in a sense, be both. Um, 
And I think we are in one of those moments where we're seeing societies flip into their evil twin. You know, I have friends in India who say it's happening, it's happening. I have friends in Italy who say it's happening. And I think a lot of us feel that sort of pull of like, is it, is it going to, is it going to flip? Um, and so the doppelganger, that, that kind of doubling, that's how we get there is the answer to that. That's, and, and that's the spine of the book. It's not her. Yeah. The spine of the book are these different kinds of doublings that kind of get bigger and bigger. I, I wonder, as you, as you disappear down the doppelganger rabbit hole, and uh, there's so many wonderful like literary and cinematic and other uh, references that are interwoven throughout the text that I think are um, stylistically different than your past writing. As you kind of dove into those, uh, all of those references, how, when did you start to realize that this could kind of coalesce into being that kind of framework for the book? Was that kind of an emergent process to sort of see this sort of notion of doubling extend in all of these different ways? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I originally thought it was going to be like a long literary essay that maybe The New Yorker would publish. That was my thought. And, 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 and I definitely thought that it would be an interesting way. I was interested in revisiting the material of my first book. I was interested in revisiting the question, questions around personal branding and how that was affecting our interpersonal relationships and our social movements. It's something that my friends and I in movement spaces talk about all the time. Um, because, of course, these platforms, these social media platforms, encourage us to perform a thing version of ourselves. And that's why the word performative is, is so ubiquitous in our culture, because we don't really trust what the versions of each other that we're seeing online. Um, and, you know, when I wrote No Logo, the idea of personal branding was really nascent. Um, there were the first celebrities who identified as brands like Michael Jordan or Oprah or Richard Branson. But the idea that regular non-celebrity people could be brands was that broke our 1990s brains. Like, cause it didn't make sense. Like, you know, like there were management consultants who were saying this, but we were laughing about it. And we understood that that was just a way of saying, you're not going to have a job. You're going to just go, go be your own brand. Right. Which of course that's exactly what it was. Um, but the idea that it could be real didn't make sense until you have the iPhone and, and Facebook. Yeah. Um, um, because suddenly everybody has an advertising agency in their back pocket, you know, and they can actually do this. So I had, I had wanted to, 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 to return to that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is funny because I obviously have a branding problem. <laughs> you know, like if, 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 if all these people think I'm somebody else and that somebody else is going on Tucker Carlson <laughs> doing like a fact-free remix of the Shock Doctrine, right. then I, my brand is in crisis. And that is funny even to me, you know. Um, so I thought, well, I can play with that. But I was thinking about it more from an essay perspective. And it wasn't until... Um, the election, you know, of Iran um, in, in our riding in, in the Sunshine Coast, West Vancouver, Sea to Sky, am I forget getting anything? It's a very long riding name. Um, and we, it was when, that was, so that was the summer of 2021. And I think realizing the, like, do you, you remember that, that election campaign, right, where suddenly like Trudeau's, Trudeau's rallies are being disrupted by anti-vaxxers right. who have like, you know, Trudeau as Hitler. And then when we started knocking on doors, 
we, we would meet, you know, in our hippy-dippy communities, people who only wanted to talk about the vaccines and their strong immune systems and the globalists. And these were people who were sort of traditional green or NDP voters. So I, it, I think it was around then, there was also like a, a big protest in the, in the rural community where we live in Seashell, which was the largest protest I could remember seeing there. And it was outside the local hospital, like there was a protest in Vancouver around this, the, on the same day, where I remember hospitals were, I mean, um, ambulances were blocked. And, and, and so, you know, at this point, Wolf, my doppelganger, was really leading this movement, right? Like she was not an incidental figure. She was there was an NPR investigation that found that she was, she was a, like the ground zero for a certain piece of misinformation about vaccine shedding and it in fact impacting the, first, the fertility of people who hadn't been vaccinated, like if they were near someone who'd been vaccinated. Um, and so, I, so it, I think that was when I realized this is bigger than me and my Naomi problem. Like this is scrambling <laughs> political signals. And, and then it was like, it, but it was a secret book. That's the other thing that was very different about this book was that um, my previous books, and I think Martha, my publisher, c can attest to this, that you know, back to No Logo, I always had an outline and a I had book proposal, and my publishers knew the book was coming. With this book, it was, I, it, I basically didn't tell, it was like, I was like eight months pregnant, and then I was like, I've written a book. I, I had written 10 <laughs> chapters before I told anybody about it. Uh, Kendra knew. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it unfolds in that way as this sort of trip into the mirror world. And for those that, that haven't read the book, I mean, I, I'm interested in that kind of conceptually and wonder, you know, what, what is the mirror world? Mm. Yeah, so the mirror world is the phrase I use to describe where Wolf has gone. Um, and it's, it, you know, it, I mean, it's, it really is the far right, but it's, it's this mix and match where... It claims to be something other than the far right. And so a phrase that's useful is diagonalism, um, which is a phrase from a, a couple political theorists in the States, Quinn Slobidian and William Callison, who use it in the European context um, to understand this mix of new age, um, kind of appeals to holism, um, you know, extreme suspicion of anything kind of artificial, right? So that might have started with GMOs, but then it's vaccines. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's being co-opted by far-right parties around the world, including here in Canada, and it reliably arcs to the right. Um, but the mirror world is, um, you know, the, like I, I came up with that phrase because I, I started to listen to a lot of Steve Bannon, like hundreds of hours of Steve Bannon, because she was on it all the time and it was research. Um, <laughs> totally research, totally research. Um, but, but he's very, he is, you know, at first I would only listen to it when she was on it, but then, you know, he would say coming up next, this, and then I'd be like, well, I'm interested to know what he's going to say about that. And the next thing I know, I was listening to the show. I couldn't get the theme song out of my head. <laughs> and, and, um, but he's, he's very clear that, you know, he, that there has, like, he, there has to be like a parallel world because it's all about the spectrum of being canceled, right? So a lot of people have been deplatformed from social media, like Twitter or Facebook. Well, not anymore with Twitter. They all got their accounts back. But um, so then they have like, you know, they have 
a, a platform that he's got a, some kind of stake in called Getter, which calls itself the Twitter killer. If you get kicked off YouTube, then you're on Parler. And um, you know, they have their own, like he sells their own currency, um, he, it, it, par, you know, parallel publishing companies. And, you know, when she, when Wolf or others like her get, get deplatformed on social media platforms that, that people like me are on, I think you're wise enough not to be on Twitter anymore. Yeah. Um, there's this feeling that they don't, no longer exist. Um, but actually, they're getting, a, in fact, they're getting a much larger, in Wolf's case, a larger platform than she's had since the 90s. Uh, I mean, this is a, a fully articulated world. And it's not just the infrastructure. There's also mirror image arguments. Like, um, for any, any argument you, that we might make, there's a mirror version of it. Um, you know, I think this sort of, that we have our own facts that we started to hear, you know, and that, that you have your facts, we have ours, right. um, is, you know, the guiding principle and conspiracy culture is rife. But the reason why I think there's a mirror world dynamic is that I would, I make the argument in the book that people on, not in the mirror world increasingly are in a reactive state. So any, uh, to what is happening there. So like, for instance, like the COVID origins, uh, I don't know where where COVID originated from, but because there there was a um, you know in Steve Bannon's world it was all about the lab, uh, that kind of became unsayable for two years uh, in sort of polite liberal and left society. You didn't really talk about the possibility that maybe it did come from the lab. And, and it's unclear why that became a partisan issue. And in a lot of cases, it's just reactive. Like if an issue is being talked about there, then we will just reflexively say the opposite. And so where that becomes really problematic is with something like vaccines, they were making up stories about Bill Gates putting, um, you know, tracking devices in our arms through the vaccines. That was not true. But then the response from a lot of liberals was, you know, just roll up your sleeve and get your vaccine, which we should have done. But there was also at the beginning of the pandemic, a much more vociferous critique of the fact that there were any patents on the vaccines at all. And a critique of Bill Gates for having been one of the key players in making sure that these vaccines had their patents protected. And so the, uh, like a deeper critique of why people in the global north and countries like Canada were lining up for their third and fourth shots when much of the world hadn't even gotten their first shot, that we were just like the pro-vaccine people. And so I'm interested in that kind of dialectic and reactivity, um, which I think has ceded a lot of political ground to the right. Uh, and this is, this is why Bannon is an interesting and dangerous political figure, is he's very good at looking at the issues that are being abandoned by the center left and co-opting them and mixing and matching them with a fascist project. Um, you know, so he did that with free trade um, in 2016. Um, and, you know, Trump had never talked about free trade before, but Bannon really knew this is an issue. People had voted for Democrats in, you know, three elections promising that they were going to renegotiate uh, free trade agreements or, you know, kill the bad ones. And then they ended up just signing new ones. So he saw, you know, this is a fertile issue that we can use to peel away an important sector of, you know, traditional Democrats. And so he has seen something similar with anger about school closure. 
cultures, for instance, during COVID. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's, that's what I mean by mirror world. And I wonder then, um, because so much of this inflected through the reading of Bannon and others like in, in those spaces is like imbued with these very deeply held conspiratorial beliefs mm -hmm. and that sort of a structuring force within yeah. that world. Um, I wonder if you can talk about this idea of kind of the conspiracy industry. So the exploitation of, um, of the spaces that were open in the course of the pandemic that kind of led to the proliferation, not only just of these voices, but the consolidation of both the economic and political opportunity that was seized upon by Bannon and others to rally people, not just ideologically, but also in service to like really building substantive power. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated because it works on a few different levels. Um, so, first of all, I think conspiracy theories are not new, and they and they um, often surge during times of crisis. And I and I have found that and covered that or noticed that when I've been covering shocks and disasters, um, particularly when you have a lot of predatory activity going on. So, um, you know, if you if there are a lot of players who are exploiting a disaster, it is understandable that people start to wonder, well, did they cause the disaster? And, and, and you know, I saw, saw that after the Asian tsunami in Sri Lanka, where there were these huge land grabs going on, and people started speculating, well, maybe the U.S. detonated a weapon that caused the tsunami. And, you know, so this is not a new phenomenon. It's, it's, the, 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 Conspiracies are stories that, that make sense of very confusing and upsetting times. Um, what's different about the way conspiracies surged during COVID is that really it was, it was that impulse to try to understand something that we didn't understand. It was a novel virus and we were all trying to, trying to Google our way to some sort of understanding in those early months. But it was, it was that sort of narrative vacuum that happens whenever we're confronting something scary and new, um, and the attention economy. So you had a lot of grifters who were able to monetize the fact that whoever put out the most extreme claim, like vaccinated people can shed onto unvaccinated people and affect their fertility, you know, they're going to get a lot of clicks because people are afraid and they're confused, right? And so that that's one of the ways that people take advantage of it. It's just just money. Um, but, but I think a figure like Bannon, while also a grifter, has greater political gains than uh, goals than that. And you know, as I quote him in the book, saying that the goal is to take power for a hundred years, and not just in the United States. He, you know, when he was out of the the kicked out of the White House um, by Trump because Trump didn't like how many people were saying that he was his brains. The first thing that he did was start this international network of far-right political parties that wove together like people like Bolsonaro and, and Giorgio Maloney in Italy. Um, and, you know, they're, they're trading strategies. And in some ways, they're more internationalist than parts of the left. Um, I mean, it's nationalist internationalism, but, it, it, but they, they are coordinating and collaborating across borders. Um, so... Bannon's a chaos agent, and, and it's definitely in his interest for people not to believe what is right in front of them. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why he's drawn to conspiracies. But also, conspiracies always play this kind of um, 
elite protection role while simultaneously seeming to be anti-elite and harnessing anti-elite rage, right? This is why, you know, in the 1800s, um, anti-Semitism, which is like the one, probably the oldest conspiracy theory or recurring conspiracy theory in the, in the world, the idea that there's this cabal of Jews that are running the world and various, you know, um, narratives associated with that, what it's, it was described as the socialism of fools because it was harnessing um, uh, rightful right anger at elites, but diverting it away from a systemic analysis like socialism would offer and offering this sort of caricature that there's just like a room somewhere where everybody is plotting things to screw you over. That's the Shylock. That's the, the and, you know, the figure of the money-lending Jew is is a very convenient, has always been a convenient figure for monarchs and, um, you know, czars and other elite figures because you have this intermediary who takes all the flack for you, right? And so I think that that, you know, if we, if we look at, at, at who is really amping up conspiracy culture now, it's some of the richest and most powerful people on the planet. I mean, Elon Musk loves a conspiracy theory. And if you were the richest man on the, in, on the planet, you would too, um, because it diverts attention away from understanding the system that, that, that you are profiting from so immensely. And it gives you this kind of fake enemy, the globalists. Um, and it's, you know, this has always been a fascist ploy. Hitler um, said that the enemy was Jewish capitalism and that if you, if you purged the Jews from the body politic, then you would have healthy capitalism again. And that's, I think, the code now as globalists is, is playing a similar role because it's a very pro-capitalist ideology and it's tricky to be pro-capitalist and anti-elite at the same time. But that's what Rupert Murdoch is trying to do, right? I mean, he wrote that letter telling everybody to keep fighting the elites once he stepped down. Um, so it's, it's, important, it's important to understand the pivot, right? To understand, because so much of the discourse seems to be anti-elite because it's saying, I'm anti-elite. Um, it, but it really does protect uh, the most powerful interests and systems because it isn't a socialism of facts that would look at the system as, you know, as it is actually constructed. Yeah, and this, this sort of notion of like looking at the system as it's actually constructed, of looking at the truth of things as they are when the wider climate is one of not even being able to agree on a fundamental level of what is real mm -hmm. makes that all the more challenging. Um, you talk a lot in the book about um, the deployment of these strategies as tactics or uh, kind of mechanisms of avoidance of a sort of a way of both disavowing what's right in front of you and in effect like avoiding confrontation with the truth of, of really what's of what's happening um, both at the level of maybe individual experience, let alone at the level of planetary crisis. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that. In particular, I'm thinking about um, this sort of triad that you talk about performing, partitioning, and projecting. Can you talk a little bit about that with respect to avoidance? Yeah. Before the night is through, we have to get Jarrett to, to share his doppelganger story, by the way. <laughs> Jarrett has a doppelganger, um, has had that, that uncanny experience of looking into a living mirror. Um, so I, I think it's helpful to, to, just, to just first say that it's, it's hard to be alive to reality uh, in this moment. Um, and, I, and, and I think conspiracy 
culture is, is it's just one way of not looking. There are other ways of avoiding reality that I think we all engage in to one degree or another. Um, and, I, and, and that's a, another reason why these sort of fantastical worldviews surged during a pandemic that acted as so many disasters do, like an unveiling um, of, of, of pre-existing massive inequalities and injustices. And that reckoning or unveiling um, happened on, has ha is happening, has happened on many levels. Um, so, you know, you're asking about not seeing and, and what's hard not to, to, you know, if we think about those early days of, of COVID and what was being revealed, you know, it's an airborne virus that is forcing us to think about our enmeshment. And, you know, you could see that as beautiful, you know, you could see that as, as, a, as a teacher, you know, as that COVID as, as, as a teacher that, that challenged this central lie of, you know, Western European individualism. Yeah. Like you are an island, you are self-made, you are, you know, um, you are responsible and accountable only to yourself and your nuclear family. And suddenly you have to think, you know, who else breathed, breathed this air? Could they call in sick? Um, and, 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 and then we're learning about these hotspots and the hotspots are overwhelmingly um, where precarious black and brown workers are packing boxes, um, processing poultry, jails, all the places that our society is so good at not seeing, right? Um, in this myth of the frictionless economy. And COVID acts as this searchlight, right? And so I, I don't think it should be a surprise that in cultures that have told people that they, that they, that they are heroic individuals, unaccountable to, to a society, you know, or as Margaret Thatcher said, there is no society, just individual men and women and their families, that people believed them and were mad when they actually had to think about getting a shot, even if they thought that their immune systems were strong, as people said to us on the doorstep, because other people's weren't. You know, there was there was, was this one person who 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 we met on the campaign trail who said, you know, Avi, she said she had an, a, a strong immune system, and Avi said, well, that's great, but you know, not everybody does. And she said, I think those people should die. Um, and so there's a way that um, you know that there's looking away, and then there's also choosing to really double down. <laughs> on that individualism. Um, and I think both, both of those things are happening. But it isn't just COVID. I mean, it, the, the, the spring of 2020 is th the largest racial justice uprising, the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, revolutionary spirit, if not revolution, um, in our streets, not just in the US, in Canada, all over the world. And this is another kind of reckoning with the realities of, of, our, of, uh, of the worlds that are often not looked at, but also a reckoning with the past, so the reckoning uh, with, with how, how our countries came to be. And then spring 2021 in this country, the, the unmarked graves in Kamloops um, are confirmed. 
And then climate disruption doesn't take a break just because you're in the middle of a pandemic and a racial justice uprising. And that's kind of the future that we're all implicated in that's coming and, and, and knocking down our doors. So I don't think it's a surprise that, that we're looking for ways to just check out from reality and just believe in like that over there, or, you know, uh, a fantastical story. That's really hard to hold all of that. And there's a sort of smugness around like, oh, those are the people who are the conspiracy people, but we are the reality-based people. But are any of us really looking at these triple reckonings that we're in the middle of right now? And, I, you know, I think there's lots of ways to look away. Could go see the Barbie movie for the sixth time, right? Um, but... Uh, <laughs> it's an arbitrary number. I, the, sixth, the sixth time, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so... so so, but I think that that, in answer to your question about the performing and projecting, I think that I think that, we, that there's a way in which the foil of the them absolves that, like if you know, if we can say they're the conspiracy people, then we are the fact people, we are the reality people, and that that's a, that's that's a very reassuring story. But I don't think I don't think any of us are really reckoning, or very few of us are reckoning. Um, yeah. But I, I want to also want to ask you, like, I mean, in addition to your doppelganger story, like how, like that, the, you know, there's also the, these these strange kinds of co-optations that happen, right? So you have the trucker convoy. I wanted yeah. to ask you about. Yeah, this. no, I want to ask you about it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great time in Ottawa. Yeah. <laughs> but like, how do you make sense of the way in which? It's clearly a distraction, right? Like, like it, and it's clearly a looking away, and it's clearly fear. You know, Canada Day is basically canceled in July 2021, and then suddenly there's Canada Day times a thousand, as one Tory MP said about the trucker convoy, just a sea of red and white flags, um, and just like we will have our myths, right? But there's also teepees and peace pipes. Yeah. And every child matters. So, yeah. I mean, I have, a, I have actually a personal story connected to this. So uh, this summer I went and visited uh, one of my aunties back home in Alberta. Uh, her name is Nancy Scanny. She lives in Cold Lake. And she got co-opted by Pat King to be part of some part of their proce process and protest uh, in the early stages of the development of the of the trucker convoy, and a particularly uh, based on an encampment that they set up on the legislature in Edmonton and in Alberta. And um, she showed me this, it was like a music video or something connected to these guys from the trucker convoy that they made that they got her to be in. Wow. And she showed it to me when I was visiting her in August because she was so livid and outraged that the message that was presented to her on the basis of the way that he showed up in her community to meet with uh, an elder who's done a lot of work for indigenous communities, for water rights, for various things, presented their project as one that was not only sympathetic to, but very much aligned with politically indigenous causes, only to have it transformed in, in such distorted ways um, that she was like personally just so sort of, sort of shocked and disappointed by that. And this weird way in which those movements have co-opted the very language of freedom, let's say, uh, in that, in that exact way, I think is one of the things that I've found so disorienting. I mean, this is a lot of what you write about in the book. And I'm like, just to say that I'm very grateful to read the book and grateful for the attempt 
to make sense of what is such a disorienting time in the way that you do. Um, I also think it's useful because you write about this in the book to talk about the, the doubling within the trucker convoy because mm. people might not be even able to remember the first iteration of it before it transforms into this cry for freedom that ended up in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, there are different iterations of the trucker convoy that predated COVID, um, but there was, there was a convoy um, in when it was... It was in the spring of 2021, started by a trucker in Kelowna named Mike Otto, who um, was, you know, seeing on the news what was ha happening at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School and um, took it upon himself to organize a convoy of truckers because the community, um, uh, um, the Sequoia community, in Kamloops had said that they didn't want visitors like strangers coming in because they were still in a pandemic. And so they had this idea of having a trucker convoy that was called the We Stand in Solidarity Convoy. And they wanted to have 215 trucks just pass in front of uh, the, the, the site of, uh, and, and just leave gifts and, and express solidarity. And it, they were actually were, it grew to over 400. And I mean, what was, what, what struck me about that, and it was, it was a little bit controversial, but a lot of people appreciated it. And you can see from the footage that people are crying and really moved. And it is this, a lot of expressions of this should not only be a burden, the burden to, to fight for justice should not only be borne by indigenous people, um, this should be a collective process. And, um, and then just seven or eight months later is the trucker convoy in Ottawa, and it's a completely different mood, and it is the opposite of that sort of, like, enmeshment, and we, like, our fates are tied together. It is, you know, I do not, you know, I, I don't have to get the shot. I don't have to do the man, you know, I, like, I, I, I am accountable only to myself. You know, and I, I want to say, like, I think that, that our, like, that our government's response to COVID really over relied on only vaccination and mask mandates and, and under utilized all kinds of collective responses that we could have had the right to good indoor air, you know, air filters in all of our classrooms, more teachers, more nurses. I mean, we didn't, um, you know, we put it all on the individual because we are highly individualist society. Um, and so I think that there, there, there are, you know, so I don't want to idealize that. Um, but, you know, Freud, when he t talked, wrote a, he wrote an essay, a really formative essay about doppelgangers called The Uncanny, um, where he is puzzling over what is the appeal of the doppelganger, why does it recur so much in, in the culture, and he said that they stand in for the lives not taken, that we all know that we could have had, you know, the life we have is, is the result of a series of choices that made by us and also made by others. Um, and so in a way, we're all haunted by like the doppelganger that is the us that we could have been if we had taken that job or this job or been born in that country or this country. And so we, we have this, I think this is why multiverse stories are so appealing, right? Um, and so, but in a way, that's what those two trucker convoys sort of say is it, it, that, that humans are messy and complicated. And, and that's why 
I think politics matters. That's because they they light up different parts of ourselves, and you know we could we could see that in the early parts of COVID, right? Like there, there that we were the people maybe setting up mutual aid networks and checking in on our neighbors and 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 wanting to show up for for frontline workers and and and, and maybe actually showing up, and we were maybe also the people who were hoarding toilet paper and just thinking about like how do we make sure that we're okay like and you know my brother Seth is here who you know used to um he's at direct the the BC Center for Policy Alternatives and often writes about this that this is why economics matters because um you know different different decisions made by policymakers light up our better selves right like if you live in a system that is telling you you're on your own because there's no social safety net and you're in that state of precarity all the time, um, then you're more likely to act very selfishly than if there is some kind of a net and there are, and, and you are getting this signal that we are all in this together, um, then you're more likely to maybe show up for the first trucker convoy rather than the second. Um, but what's interesting is that some people showed up for both, right? right? right. Um, which points out that yeah, we were a mess. Um, so, <laughs> I, I, part of me is wondering, and and I don't think there's a definitive answer to this, but wondering where all of this doubling is headed. So, in, on the one level, I, the question is, how do we, how do we collectively and maybe individually also escape the mirror world, shatter the mirror? Is the goal? a recoherence of the self that's been partitioned, both at the level of the individual or at the level of the society, community, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. kind of we, or are we now in a time that will be forever, forever haunted by the endless doubles and the hall of mirrors for all eternity? <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm curious, like, where, where, is this, where does this point in, in your own thinking and your own kind of consideration of, uh, of the doubling that you've been writing about and thinking about? Do you want to tell your doppelganger story? It's not that interesting, though. I mean, it's, <laughs> but why it's, is it so creepy? I mean, it's yeah, it was it was unnerving. I think it's it's, an, it's the unexpected encounter yeah. with the other that is both same and not same that is what's so unnerving. I, yeah. I, the the short version because it's not yeah. particularly interesting. But um, I had the experience of encountering a doppelganger on two different occasions. Um, the same person once. Um, once at a film festival in Stockholm, Sweden, I was doing an exchange term in Stockholm or in Sweden, and I went to the Stockholm Film Festival, and there was there myself was already when I arrived at the film that I was going to see, and we didn't really acknowledge each other, but we saw each other and had this moment of some mutuality, recognition in some way that was odd. Yeah, and I didn't really think much about it other than the fact of it happening, and I kind of I did think about it for a while afterwards. And then I was living in Montreal, and uh, I walked into a cafe on Saint-Denis one day, as you do, and I went to go sit down and have my coffee, and there, were nowhere, there was nowhere else to sit uh, other than one table that was already occupied but had another chair across from it. Um, and I sat down and saw myself there. Like, there's this guy again. And I was like, I've seen this person before. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think it is a good story, Jared. There's not that many people who've had that direct doppelganger yeah. experience. And we had some yeah. kind of a conversation. I don't really remember the content of it, but there were some other parallels that came out yeah. of it. But mostly it was it was kind of impossible to, to have the conversation with this person 
in a way because it was so unexpected. It wasn't like, oh, you know, who you should meet as your doppelganger. And, you know, this is a preordained meeting and we're going to talk about the experience of being yeah. doubled or yeah. twinned or what have you. Uh, it was the it was the unexpected encounter. And and it's it stayed with me, maybe in light of what you're talking about, which is like not that his life is the path that I didn't take or vice versa, per se. Um, but in the implication that the sort of the multiplicity of selves, yeah. not only that exists in our own, let's say, imaginative experience, but in a way that is made flesh by the appearance of another who yeah. could be one version of that existing in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and th this is, I think, the tension of the doppelganger because it's like, it's, it, it, and it's, I think, why artists are drawn to it so again and again, because it is both this challenge to the idea that we are like al alone and unique, but also this challenge to the aloneness and the fact that we like we yeah. like we contain both of those impulses. That's another way that we're a mess is that we, you know, it, we do polish up the self and we and, and we, you know, we we like it, it is our most prized possession. Um, but we also go through life looking for connection and soulmates and, you know, and, and, and long to kind of be lost in others, you know, and, and that's, you know, where I, I, I land in a way that there is this wonderful way in which having a, a doppelganger puts the self into perspective in a way that I think is really useful in a, in, in a culture that is pushing us to constantly perform and perfect and polish the individual self as a kind of a life raft in these roiling seas. Like, you know, back to that, that, you know, why were we being told to be our own brands? Because we were being told we were not going to have jobs anymore. Like we weren't going to have security. And so, I think this is the overwhelming message is, you know, perfect the self, optimize the self, um, put yourself above others. And this is why these questions around personal branding, I think, are really urgent because they do, it does undermine solidarity. It does undermine relationships. Um, and being a brand is different from being a person. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, I found that losing control over my public self to an extent during dur dur during the pandemic was actually quite liberating like as somebody who who has like is fairly self-conscious um and because i you know sort of became like well known when i was pretty young and so i've i've sort of had i think an outsized sense of the, how much any of it mattered because i felt sort of watched and there was, there was just something like at a certain point, just realizing it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want, but people are going to think that you, you're telling people that people who have had COVID don't smell like human beings. And they've basically been, you know, body snatched, which is one of the things she said. Right. And so right. there is something like, I'm not saying that I don't care about myself anymore, but there is like, I do think that like, if we're going to reckon with these forces that we're talking about and all the things that we're trying to distract ourselves from in various ways, we are only going to do it together. You know, in the book, I quote Mariam Kaba um, saying every, you know, a famous line of hers that, you know, everything worth doing is done with other people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, you know, Astra Taylor's wonderful work around debt and the, you know, the sort of liberation of, you know, taking something that is this shameful personal experience 
and collectivizing it and, and, and turning and what happens. And in the book, I quote, Kangi Amata Taylor and also John Berger about like the power of mass movement and mass demonstration isn't just that you demonstrate to power that you that there's lots of you you demonstrate to each other that this, that often what felt like like a shameful personal burden um, uh, you know not not being able to make ends meet um, you know or debt or whatever it is 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 you become as Berger said you become a class and so. Yeah, I think doppelgangers ultimately are, like for me, about putting the self into perspective um, and and maybe reaching towards each other into these spaces, which are the only spaces where 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 it becomes like it's it, like we can only look at these overwhelming realities, whether it's the climate crisis um, or the fact that you know our settler colonial nations were built on lies, um, you know, which is, you know, I was talking about Israel, but I could have been talking about Canada. Um, like, you know, if we are re-narrativizing together, if we are, um, you know, if, 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 we're, if we're helping each other see and holding each other in seeing, um, because I think as individuals, we, like we're putting so much on the, on the individual that, that, that the self is sort of buckling under the pressure, which is another way of seeing this kind of derangement. Um, yeah, that's, so I'm grateful to, to my doppelganger in the end. I see it as a kind of uh, exercise in Zen non-attachment. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been good at it, but she helped me. She yeah. helped you, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, well, that's a great place for us to leave it. Um, okay. Thank you so much for this book, for this conversation this evening. Mm. Thank you all for being here. <laughs> Naomi Klein. Thank you, Jared. You have been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. To hear more events like this one and view our upcoming events, visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.